We're going to be looking in Luke chapter 14 today, so you want to turn there. Baseball season started just recently, and you may know the Chicago Cubs haven't won a World Series since 1908. Uh, If you're a Cubs fan, I'm sure you can give me a reason for that. Uh, On the north side of Chicago, excuses abound. They range from stories about UFOs to stories about black cats. Uh, I think my favorite uh, excuse is Jack Brickhouse's longtime uh, uh, announcer for the Cubs. He said, any team can have a bad century. (laughs) Have you learned that people who are good at making excuses are rarely good at making anything else? The parable that we're going to look at today is about people who make excuses, and that doesn't work well for them. Um, I want to give us a little background before we read our text, because we need to understand something about the society Jesus lived in to, to really enter into the text. It was comprised of, I guess, three primary groups or classes. There was an upper class. I hesitate even to call them that because it's not like our setting, but there was an upper class that was made up of members of government and their retainers uh, of the aristocracy who largely who did belong to the Jewish sect known as Sadducees and to the temple priests. So there's an upper class. There's a middle class comprised of traders, merchants, artisans uh, like stonecutters, masons, sculptors, uh, craftsmen who worked in metal or wood or in cloth, uh, educators and scribes, including the Pharisees and other prominent Uh, Jewish sect, they were part of the middle class. The lower class was made up of laborers, weavers, uh, stone carriers, uh, day workers in the fields, slaves, as well as the unemployable, lepers, the blind, uh, people with mental illnesses, the crippled, etc. The upper class, the government leaders, the aristocratic families, the high-ranking soldiers, They made up less than one-tenth of the total population, but they earned two-thirds of the money. Sound familiar? Things really haven't changed very much. This group offered no meaningful service to society besides military protection. They didn't make anything. They didn't grow anything. They didn't transport anything. And although almost all of the money in first-century Israel came out of agriculture, most of it ended up in their pockets because they either owned the land on which the crops were grown or they received tax revenues from the people who did own the land and from the laborers who worked it. They were very clear, much more clear than in society today. There were very clear boundaries between social groups. The wealthy, then as it has been throughout history, used their money to keep a distance from the poor and for the most part from that middle group. Uh, middle class, and I say middle class, but it's important to understand that the class system was not founded on wealth as ours is. It was based on genealogy and power. But of course, wealth follows genealogy and power. When there was interaction between these very distinct classes, it was almost always initiated from the top down, by the higher class to the next lower one in a system of patronage. So the procurator uh, in Jesus' time, Pontius Pilate, 
The procurator might invite the aristocracy to a banquet. A member of the aristocracy might invite a high-ranking military man to a dinner. A high-ranking military man might invite a rich merchant or enter into a business contract with him. The higher reached out to the lower, but not the other way around. And when they did so, it was always to the class of people immediately below them on the social ladder. So the aristocrat might invite a high-ranking military officer to a dinner. He would not invite a low-ranking military officer to a dinner. He wouldn't invite an artisan like a carpenter. For most part, the upper class paid no attention whatsoever to the lower class, except when they felt threatened by an uprising. And then they paid brutal attention. If society wasn't arranged around money, and that's hard for us to imagine, how was it ordered? It was ordered around this patronage system that I just outlined to you and around religious purity laws, which were phenomenally important. The purity laws tended to keep that patronage system intact since the, the rules, the regulations were difficult to follow if a person was poor and couldn't afford to pay others to do things that might lead to impurity. Now, when you hear impurity, don't think of impurity as a matter of sinful motives, but as a failure to keep certain regulations. In the eyes of society in the first century, you could be a bitter, deceitful, lying, arrogant man and still be a pillar in the religious community as long as you kept the purity regulations. When the events in our text take place, Jesus is at the home of a prominent religious leader who had invited other prominent people to a high-profile dinner. You can be sure that everything was done in keeping with the customs that I just outlined. As the meal progressed, Jesus, it's almost funny, it's humorous to read, did or said one thing after another to make his host regret having invited him. I can't help but think that everyone in the room, except Jesus, was uncomfortable. And then in verses 11 and 12, Jesus said to the host, or is it 12 and 13? Look at verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. That's how the system worked. He says, don't do that. If you do, they may invite you back, and you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, one of the guests listened to this, and he replied with what seems to me, maybe I'm unjust, I don't know, but it seems to me to be a sanctimonious kind of response. We're going to read from there, beginning in verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, 
what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, let's go back to Jesus' advice in verses 12 and 13 and 14. To invite the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. That would have made no sense to the people gathered at this meal. In fact, it would have seemed to them to be in bad taste. Inviting those kind of people to a banquet would be vulgar and tactless. And yet, ironically, those people assumed that it was good taste for God to invite them to the great feast in the kingdom of God. Yet I wonder if when they looked at them, or at us for that matter, the angels of heaven don't see when they look, the poor and the blind and the crippled and the lame. In the original language, verse 16 reads like this, but he, that is Jesus, said to him, that is the man who had just spoken. And I mention this because to my knowledge, this is the only time that Jesus ever spoke a parable to an individual. Of course, the others at the table got to listen in. But the story that we're, we've read is a response to this self-righteous attitude that underlies the exclamation, blessed is the man who will eat the feast at the kingdom of God. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus undoubtedly agreed that the person who eats the feast in the kingdom of God is blessed. But he told this story as a warning against a smug assurance of being present at that feast and against the self-righteous satisfaction that other people would not be present. It's not enough to be happy that I'm going to be there. I'm happy that you're not going to be. That's the idea. In Jesus' story, a man, and he's undoubtedly a rich man. Um, Jesus retold this story in Matthew chapter 22 on another occasion, and he told it with variations, and in that story he made the man a king. So think of a rich man who's planning an elaborate banquet, perhaps a wedding feast, and has invited many guests. Today, we send little save-the-date cards for these kind of events, but in those days they send a save-the-date servant. And he would go to people's houses and tell them and, and take reservations. So we need to understand that the guests who didn't end up attending in the parable had already RSVP'd that they were going to be there. On the day of the banquet, the household staff would be up early. There would be cows or sheep to butcher and roast, water to carry, bread to bake, tables to decorate, Unlike our dinners, there was no set time on the invitation. When the servant came, he didn't give them a time, but he gave them a day. When the meal was done, the host would send out a troop of servants to tell the invited guests it was time to come. And that's what happened. But when the servant went to call them, this is verse 18, they all alike began to make excuses. The original says something like, one and all began to beg off. It's almost like they had talked to each other. You going? Yeah, I really don't want to. What about you? Man, I got a lot of other things I could be doing. So when the servant arrived, as they knew he would, they knew he was going to come on this day, they had their excuses well prepared. The first one bought a field, and he needed to go see it. Well, when I read that, I thought, wouldn't he want to see the field before he bought it? 
And it's possible that the, the final uh, purchase was contingent upon him seeing the field and agreeing that it was good. But if that were the case, couldn't he wait till tomorrow? And since banquets were generally held in the evening, was he going to go inspect the land in the dark? Second guy bought five yoke of oxen. He wanted to try them out. That's like buying a car before you test drive it. But even if the sale was contingent on the test drive, was he going to try these oxen out in the dark? And a farmer who could afford to buy five yoke of oxen, that's absolutely huge, was a big-time operator. He certainly could have sent some of his men to try out the oxen. The third guy just got married. By the way, the third guy is not polite at all. The other people in the original language are very polite, begging off from this. The third guy just says, I can't come. I, I got married, I can't come. Well, if he knew he was going to get married, and in that society you would know that for about a year engagement before the wedding, why did he accept the invitation in the first place? Marriage was, in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, a legitimate excuse for not serving in the military for one year. It was a poor excuse for not attending a banquet. So when the servant got back and told his master that one and all had excused themselves from coming, his boss got angry. These people had been invited and had accepted The master knew full well that their excuses were not really about land purchases and weddings and business investments. The bottom line was that they didn't want to come. See, when the heart lacks desire, the mouth never lacks an excuse. So what was the master going to do? He butchered the cows and the lambs. His household staff had already got the feast ready, and there was no one to enjoy it. So he sent his servant to round up some people, lots of people, for the feast. This is verse 21. Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now, obviously it's no coincidence that these are the same people Jesus urged his host to invite to dinner back in verses 12 and 13. The man in this story is an illustration of what it looks like to follow Jesus' instructions. And he really flouts the long-established, carefully preserved social practices we were talking about that were all about looking good, but not about being good. See, looking good and not being good may be the chief hindrance to a life well-lived, a life lived in God's kingdom. So much of religion as usual is about looking good. But trying to look good actually gets in the way of trying to be good. And, of course, Jesus understood that. In our story, the master sent the servant into the streets and alleys of the city. Now, those aren't the main avenues and thoroughfares. Those were the places where you would find the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The people in that society who were usually forced to beg. And he told his servant to bring them in. Of course he did. They were crippled and blind and lame. They would need someone to bring them to the banquet. And the master intended for them to get the help that they needed. Now, this is just an aside, but we who've been called by God to the great feast in his kingdom are handicapped too, in one way or another, and more seriously than any of us knows. We need help or we'll never get there. And God has arranged help for us, his Holy Spirit, 
to lead us home at the last. Even after bringing these people, there's still room. So the master whom, in the original language, Jesus now calls Lord, sends the servant back out, this time into the byways and the hedges, literally, into the, the little little lane, little uh, uh, alleyways and hedges to find the least and the lost, the social misfits and the outcasts. And this time he doesn't tell his servant to bring them to the banquet, but to make them, to compel them to come to the banquet so that, as the Lord says, my house will be full. An invitation to the rich man's banquet would have been so unconventional. It had never happened before, not just to any of these people, but to anyone. So unconventional that these people would have held back. Anyway, I shouldn't say that it never happened before. Um, There was an ancient story of a tax collector who threw a banquet and invited people to come in a way that violated the patronage system, and they all turned him down. And so he invited the poor and the untouchables to come to his banquet. So it had happened in that occasion. Now this Lord sends his servant out to compel people to come. They would think, surely he can't, there's got to be some kind of mistake. We're not supposed to go. But the servant went and compelled them to come in. He reassured them. Their presence really was desired. The man in this story is like God. He wants his house to be full. Now, in many of his stories, Jesus uses characters who on some level either represent or at least resemble God. You have to be careful when dealing with parables to draw one-on-one analogies. But very frequently, Jesus has someone who is a master, a king, a lord in his stories who somehow resembles God. It's surprising, though the more we get to know God, the more sense this makes how often these godlike characters in Jesus' stories are throwing parties. That's not how we usually think about God. In some Christian traditions, really, God is the ultimate party pooper. He is no fun at all, and he doesn't want any of us to have any fun either. But guess what? That's our tradition, not Jesus's. His father seems to be looking for any excuse he can find to throw a party. And he's not looking to exclude people, to disqualify them and keep them out. He's looking to include people. Imagine having a God like that. But you don't have to imagine. You do have a God just like that. In this story, we have a householder who's throwing a party. He wants everyone there. But listen, some people will not be there. Even though he wants them to be there, some people will not be. They'll miss the party. But that's not because the householders disqualified them. It's not because they don't meet his rigorous standards. I mean, really, he'll let anybody in. He sends invitations to the blind, the deaf, the lame, the crippled, people who were routinely in the first century excluded from social gatherings and who were even forbidden membership in some religious communities. The people who miss out on the party and Jesus' story miss it by their own choice. They prefer not to be there. They are, that is, they have made themselves to be the kind of people who do not and cannot want 
to be at the party. Now, I don't think this is the main point of the parable, but I think it is nevertheless important for us to to understand. The people who were excluded from the party were those who took for granted their right to be there, but they chose themselves not to be. One of the thorniest questions for people, uh, people who've come to me over the years is, is the question of who gets excluded from God's kingdom. If God's good, why are some people barred from entering his kingdom? And barred eternally. How can God be just while turning away people who've never heard the gospel or who belong to another religion or who suffered from a chaotic or irreligious or abusive upbringing? Surely God would not refuse such people entrance into his kingdom. But if this parable speaks to that subject, and I think it does since it's introduced by that remark about the blessedness of those who will eat the feast in the kingdom of God, if this parable speaks to that subject, then it's not God that bars people from entering. The gates of the kingdom are not locked. The people who will not be there are people who do not want to be there. A wise man put it this way. We should be very sure that the ruined soul is not one who's missed a few more or less important theological points and will flunk a theological exam at the end of life. Hell is not an oops or a slip. One does not miss heaven by a hair, but by constant effort to avoid and escape God. Our outer darkness is for one whose entire orientation has slowly and firmly set itself against God. Now, how do you read it? Would the people in the story consider their rationale for not going to the feast to be an excuse, I'm making up excuses, or a legitimate reason? Well, if they were at all like us, they would have thought their reasons entirely legitimate and perhaps even unavoidable. I couldn't help this. This is just what happened. And here's the thing. We will think that our excuses are legitimate reasons, too, if we're not careful. In the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly warned us. I would encourage you to read the Gospels looking for this of the dangers posed by relationships and possessions. They can become barriers to following him. Our commitment to moving up in the world, to success and honor, can get in our way. It's no coincidence that in this story, it's this, this commitment to moving up in the world, to success, to getting more and more, along with relationships, that keeps people from responding to the invitation. This story invites us, it begs us, really, to look at ourselves. Are there relationships in our lives that are hindering us from following Jesus? Are there commitments that we've made that seemed right and good, but have taken the place that belongs only to Jesus? Is the orientation of our daily lives veering away from God? Are we becoming the kind of people who prefer an away-from-God life? See, the question is not whether or not you're invited. The question is whether you're the kind of person 
who will actually accept the invitation. As Jesus said on another occasion, many are invited. Few are chosen. In over 30 years of pastoral ministry, I've heard lots of excuses. Sometimes they're excuses for not attending church services, not getting involved in ministry, not reading the Bible. They're, they're more excuses for such things than for the Cubs losing season. And the thing is, those excuses sound so reasonable. Oh, that's why you're not coming to church. Well, of course, I, that makes sense now. Or, well, yeah, I guess if there was ever a valid reason for not reading the Bible, that would be it. Or who could pray under those circumstances? It sounds so reasonable, but as time goes on, I've noticed this. People stop making excuses. Because what was an excuse has become a lifestyle. A lifestyle that is oriented away from God. You know, it's particularly disconcerting that the people in Jesus' story originally said yes to the Lord's invitation. They said yes with their mouth, but with their choices, they said no. That's a very real possibility for any one of us. So what can we learn from this story? We can, I think, learn that if we let society set the rules for us, rules about who qualifies and who doesn't, rules about what's of ultimate importance, getting ahead and being successful, if we do that, we will find it very difficult to live successfully in God's kingdom. We must learn God's ways, which will fit our life so much better than the ways of the world, but will often be in conflict with them. We should also learn that when we find ourselves making excuses for not doing something right or good, that we're already in danger. No matter how legitimate the excuse sounds, if we're not careful, the day will come when we will no longer bother to make excuses, and then we will be in trouble indeed. We also learn, I think, that God wants people in his kingdom. <clears throat> in fact, he is scandalously indiscriminate in the way he passes out invitations. He'll take anybody. I'm living proof of that. You needn't worry that someone who wants to get in won't. Worry instead that you might become the kind of person who doesn't want to get in. So stop making excuses. Start making prayers. For we are, as Tim Keller once put it, more sinful than we ever dared believe. But we're more loved than we ever dared hope. That's the good news that Jesus brings. Let's pray. God, save us from presumption and our arrogance. What must it look like to you? We think if anyone deserves a place at the great feast, that it's us. And yet we're broken. 
We're beggars, and we don't know it. But how we praise you, that you are who you are, great and good and loving and full of joy, and how we praise you that you have invited us through your son, Jesus, into your kingdom and given us your spirit. Lord, I pray that you will impress on our minds and, and into our hearts the truths that you want us to learn today. And with that, Lord, give us grace to act on it. In Jesus' name.